Thank you very much, Ruben, for that kind and unnecessary introduction. Um, so this is our third of four in our series on Psalm 1. And as we said last week, it's kind of setting ourselves up for the next two years uh, as ministry in the present. We're focusing on how we grow to maturity, how we get stability, and how we really get down deep into all that, that God has for us. What I hope to do tonight is to introduce you to a workable and biblical model, the three trees model, of how you can use to understand what is going on in your heart, what fruit you're producing, and how you can bring Christ and his word to bear on that in a really important, practical, daily way. Now, lots of things we can talk about in scripture with fruit, isn't there? It's a theme that runs right through. Um, and just to put it at the outset, we're not talking about all sorts of fruits and, and going into the, the kind of Christian characteristics, but we're more interested tonight in the process of how we begin to get there. Um, not everybody understands what fruit is. Um, I have a secret liking as a teenager for some of those quiz shows. One of them was Going for Gold, a guy called Henry Kelly, um, who very colorful, and there were lots of quirky Europeans on um, answering various questions. And one of the rounds they had was you had to, you know, give a country beginning with C, and whoever was able to get the most got the most points, and, you know, and all expenses paid trip to Donegal or wherever it was. So um, one of the questions was name the biblical fruits of the spirit. And by the time people were starting to stumble through apple, banana, and pineapple, it was obvious that they didn't have a clue what they were talking about. And I was kicking myself that it wasn't actually on the show uh, to get a thousand pounds or whatever was going. Because I had earlier memorized the nine fruit of the spirit, see, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control that Paul talks about. And he talks about this as being the work of the Holy Spirit. There's not nine fruits, there's one fruit of the Spirit. It's the type of character that God wants to produce um, in us. We're not just to be you know, loving and joyful, but remain uncontrollably impatient or badly unkind. We display all the fruits of the Spirit. Now, as I said, we're gonna be very selective here um, tonight. And um, I think it's really important just to put in context that the idea of fruit starts in the Bible and it ends uh, at the end of Revelation. In the book of Genesis, God talks about fruit all the time, um, the physical creation, but also the fruits of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, of the tree of life. And whatever these things actually were, and of course, guess which one that Adam and Eve ate from when they shouldn't have, there's something very clear in this, uh, these pictures of fruit. It's not just like some sort of conceptual fruit salad. These things mean something to encourage Christians. And there's something about God setting up life where we choose a path of life and fruitfulness according to his design, or else we go our own way and establish our own um, experiences and rules. One leads to life and joy in the presence of God, and another path cynically promises knowledge, but ultimately leaves us experiencing and tasting the bitter fruits of suffering and death. Our Lord Jesus Christ was, um, unlike me, was, was very uh, knowledgeable about the ground, about agriculture, about the environment around him. And we read this morning in our Breaking of Bread and talked about in John 15 about how Christ was the true vine and how we needed to be connected to him. We are to bear fruit that lasts. And by bearing fruit that lasts, we prove to people that we are Christ's followers, that we are Christ's disciples. 
So that's all fine, but what does this actually look like in practice? So if you've got Jeremiah 17 handy, we're going to look at it a little bit. Um, Jeremiah contrasts with Psalm 1. He starts off by saying, Cursed is the one who trusts in man and not the Lord. And this person, uh, man or woman, who turns away from God, he, he ends up like a fruitless shrub in the desert with no hope in a salty, uninhabited parched land uh, where there's no leaf or fruit. And, and soil needs to be salty. There needs to be nutrients there. But if it's too salty, what happens is it basically sucks the water back out of the roots of the plant. And so it removes any source of hydration or fluid because it is so salty. The leaves in the shrub turn to thorns. The land is barren and there's no habitation. So it means there's no gardener around to tend to try and bring some order to this chaos. There is no hope for such a shrub. And this is a picture of everybody who is outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. We may think that's a bit surprising. and think, well, I have a very fruitful life. I'm a good moral person. You know, I've got lots of wonderful qualities and I'm, I'm trying my best. But actually in terms of pleasing God, in terms of a relationship with him, unless you are in Christ, you cannot but bear fruit like a shrub, barren, empty, and ultimately dead. And the reason is, as Jeremiah goes on to say, to say that our hearts, our inward beings, are deceitful and desperately wicked. And the effects of our heart in fruit is seen in evil deeds, coming from evil thoughts that come from evil desires that come from, from sin. And that's unfortunately the case with everybody who comes in to this world. This is what we are like by birth. And I think we're to understand, the Bible is clear about this, we're understand not just that we're sinners, but the processes of how we get there. Because in God's grace, he wants to undo, he wants to reverse those things and show a process from Christ's death through us becoming Christians, through us maturing, what are the steps we need to take and why is this such a positive and good thing? Apostles Peter and James, they talk in great deal about the process of this is what Christ has done, this is the example he has led, therefore because of this, think about this, do this, trust this, and become that. There is a process here. And this is a process that overcomes all of our natural inclinations to just, you know, be lazy, go our own way. And those who do find that far from being cursed, they're actually blessed. When you trust in the Lord and take him as his word, you see the same picture here that we saw in Psalm 1. But in this case, the roots are almost like seeking out, like heat-seeking missiles to where the streams of water are. Developing Psalm 1, we see this tree is actually flourishing even when there's heat, even when there's the heat, scorching heat of the desert. It doesn't become a barren shrub, but it becomes an evergreen tree that in time bears fruit. And the tree is not anxious. It doesn't go into like some form of arboreal hibernation or emergency shutdown during heat wave, but it actually flourishes. And this is the picture that God wants for you if you are a Christian. And if you're not a Christian, God wants you to live a life that actually is fruitful and it means something. And we're going to see how this process is accomplished through the gospel. The Lord Jesus taught that out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, thefts, adultery, sexual immorality, slander. And in Luke chapter 6, 
we find this really important lesson that what you are, you fruit, and what you fruit, you are. Let's listen to the passage. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs aren't gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. So what you are, that's the fruit you bear, and the fruit you bear, that is what you are. So we're going to take these passages that we've read, Psalm 1, Jeremiah 17, and Luke 6, and I'm going to show you this three trees model. It's a model developed by a number of people, primarily David Paulison from Christian Counseling Foundation and Biblical Counseling UK. And I think it's a very simple, straightforward model for how actually God changes our hearts. But before I take you through that, and before then we talk about how this might look, have looked in the life of the prophet Jonah, three little warnings before we delve into this. First of all, beware of fake fruits, you know, the kind of plastic stuff that looks good but ultimately melts and you can't eat it. This is not about turning over a new leaf, okay? This is not about, you know, losing weight or keeping your bedroom tidy or, you know, being less paranoid generally. That is surface stuff. Turning over a new leaf isn't going to help a barren shrub. There needs to be a complete change in the root system and the whole way it's planted and nourished. Christianity is not fake it till you make it. It's not about being nice, being moral. There needs to be inner transformation. So beware fake fruit. Beware, when we talk about counseling our hearts, of like a passive, inward-looking introspection. Passage here says, you know, our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked, so we're not going to know our hearts. But the Lord knows our heart. He searches our motives. And because of that, we can, as Christians, look at, well, what is the motivation of my heart? What is ruling my heart at this moment in time? What are the voices I'm listening to and that I'm following? There's no excuse for us to retreat inwardly and not take bold steps to making progress in our Christian lives, trusting God to make that little bud of fruit grow into something good, okay? So this is something that's going to energize you, not be inward looking and, and almost reaching nirvana or some sort of circling around yourself. It's so that you can become fruitful outwardly. And then the third thing that can happen is um, this is not religious scrupulosity, okay? We're not wanting to make you little mini Pharisees who are so obsessed with every detail in your life. Have I sinned? Will this be a good witness? Is this really what the Bible teaches in everything that you do in your life that you become paralyzed, that you become anxious? And usually fall on, find you've fallen into this trap when you believe God is angry with you for every small issue that you've had or when you don't have everything all wrapped up or that maybe you fundamentally believe that God doesn't actually like me. That's when you fall into the trap of religious scrupulosity, when you think God hates you for being a bad Christian. Okay, so three things just to be aware that are not biblical and will um, hamstring you in your walk as Christians. Fake fruit, passive introspection, or religious scrupulosity. So if it's not those things, well, what is it? And Alex, you can, you can throw up the, the diagram there. Now, some people like diagrams and other people absolutely hate them. Um, if you hate this, listen to what I say. If you like it, listen to what I say, but also follow, follow this. So the Bible talks about the fact that we're all going to experience heat. That's what the passage says. When times of scorching come, 
And heat here can be anything in your situation. It's living in a fallen world, your indwelling sin, the temptations you face, it's the restriction of just being a human. You know, you can't be in two places at once looking after 14 children, uh, trying to balance everything. It's about the wrongs we've done and the wrongs done to us. It's seeing other people suffer. It's just having choice. You know, you can go into this career, that career. You can date this person or that person. You have these options. More sinisterly, it can be satanic attack. It can be the voices of misleading counsel telling you to go one way rather than another. Whatever these things are, they produce heat. And heat produces a reaction. It cannot but produce a reaction in our hearts. Both the good tree and the bad tree experience the heat. The good tree is fruitful and verdant and tasty and attractive and stable. The bad tree is a shrub. Bad fruit, what might that look like? Well, perhaps that's people who are just cynical. They've disengaged from everything. The things they tell themselves are, nobody really cares. Christians are a bunch of hypocrites. I'm not going to engage. I'm going to go my own way. For a Christian, they may be producing bad fruit because they have told themselves, well, you know, I need to prove myself. Um, God has done a lot for me, but I need to prove myself. I need to actually be in competition with fellow Christians. I need to show them that I'm holy and I'm doing the things that are expected. Whereas good fruit may be fruit that actually turns away from those stories. It goes, well, actually, you know, I know that I'm not the perfect person. God is doing a work in me. And even though it's scary, I'm going to ask him to help me with my anger issues, help me with my fear of man, help me with the fact that I am a people pleaser. I need you, Lord, to take that away from me. You need your help, Lord, day by day. Because when we see these things, again, and we talked about how we can be very superficial last week and not get down deep into the roots of God's word, and it's the same thing when we're bearing fruit, we need to see, has the bad fruit come from a bad root? Has a good fruit come from a good root? What is a bad root? Well, a bad root is everything that's in our sinful nature that tells us what we want to hear and tells us false things. It tells us that you are the master of your destiny. It tells us that there is no God. It tells us to live for the here and now. This is what sin does to us. It warps us and we continue to produce bad fruit that gets worse and worse and it feeds back in itself. Bad fruit begets more bad fruit, begets more bad fruit. Whereas on the left-hand side, the good fruit in Christ, we go, well, my identity is in Christ, not in my sexual preferences, not in my temptations, not in my past sins, not in what the world tells me I should be, but in Christ, and therefore, I can live in such a way consistent with that. And this is when we become the good Jeremiah tree. On the right, we have fruit that lasts, that pleases God, and that will endure whatever heat is thrown at it. On the right, it's like an itch that we've scratched too much. It may be really lovely and euphoric at the start, but unfortunately, like sin, there is a bitter end, and it starts to burn and tear us apart, and we become much less than what the Lord would have us. What tree do you want, and why do you want to be that tree? Which do you value more? And how indeed, if we're all like this, do we actually even begin to move to that tree? Well, this is where the three trees model comes in because you've got one tree there, two trees there, but it's the tree of the cross that makes that decisive change. 
It's interesting that in the book of Acts, for example, um, especially if you read the older versions, it translates the word that we often use cross as tree. And the apostle Peter uses the word tree uh, rather than cross uh, more frequently as well. And there's something interesting about the fact that Christ was crucified upon, yes, a cross, but, but a tree. And everything that Christ has done in his death and resurrection has removed sin, got a new relationship for us, and it teaches us what he is like. Christ's cross, dying for us, has released the Holy Spirit to begin that work of change in our lives as believers. And so in repentance and faith, we can move from being a bad tree with bad roots, producing bad fruit, to something that is genuinely fruitful. It's not turning over a new leaf. It's not being more religious or just being a bit more savvy socially. It's about transformation. So how do we actually begin this process of bringing God's word to bear in our situation? Say that you have gone from here to here, but you're still struggling with thorny shrubbery in your experience. Well, bringing God's word into your heart may be as simple as, as maybe memorizing some of it and recalling in situations, maybe you could memorize Psalm 1 for next week, that actually this is the way that is beneficial. I may not feel it initially. It may not be emotionally satisfying, but it is the truth. Memory verses are incredibly helpful to call to mind when you're faced with sin and temptation or uncertainty, and they can be mighty weapons in orienting, orienting you to trust the Lord rather than you know, other things. You'll notice that many of the hymns tonight contain great examples of how we speak truth into our hearts. And, uh, you know, these hymns were good. One hymn that I think is particularly good is the Getty hymn, My Worth is Not in What I Own. Fantastic example of taking the scriptures, God's word, and applying, well, actually, this is what it means to me in the here and now. Does scripture tell us not to lust or steal? Just obey it. Be submissive to it. Don't do it. Does scripture give us examples and principles to live by that we can think, yeah, I need a bit of imagination. How is that applying to my situation? Maybe it's the goals in Scripture. Do you want to be somebody who can bear another's burden in the church that people look up to as being a tree, as being a source of help and support? Do you want to be freed from anxiety about every change in your life? Then begin this process of the three trees. Now, if you want to take this more, um, there's a wealth of material. Um, you can type in three-tree model into Google. You'll get this and similar diagrams, and also some really helpful stuff that asks a lot of questions that you can, in your own time, speak into your heart and going, what is in charge of my heart? What are the things that are telling me to go this way versus that way? And how then might scriptures begin to modify that? Let's look at a really practical example, the example of the prophet Jonah. Now, I'm sure you know Jonah, he had the easiest gig of any prophet. He was tasked by God with going to the enemies of God's people, the Ninevites, and preaching a message of repentance. And Jonah was so knowledgeable about God, he knew that it was going to be success because he knew that God was merciful and gracious. But Jonah manages to completely mess things up, doesn't he? He runs away, gets thrown overboard, he gets swallowed by a great sea monster, and in this belly of the, the whale or the, the sea creature, he experiences actually being close to death and then God's deliverance. Maybe he actually even does die and God resuscitates him. He's then kind of vomited out in the land, preaches his message, which is one single phrase, and then he sits down outside the city. 
He sits down outside the city and wants to see what's God going to do? Is his judgment actually going to fall? Because that's what he wanted. God asks him, Jonah, you seem a wee bit angry there. What's, are you happy about that? And he goes, yeah, I am. I'm happy. I'm angry with you. I'm angry and I want to die. And then God says, okay, that's fine. He provides a little plant to provide some shade for him. And Jonah is exceedingly pleased. But then when it dies, Jonah gets into a megastrop again. So how would you counsel Jonah? Where would you begin? Somebody who looks like a mature believer, who knows the Bible inside out, he's being used by God, he's going to be successfully used by God, yet his outbursts, his behavior, are totally at odds with that. Jonah was a, well, we would call him saved or you know, a Christian, but he is really developing lots and lots of bad fruit bizarre, twisted, perverse fruit that you think, what on earth is going on there? And what the Lord does is he does a little diagnostic test and he gently asks Jonah, are you well to be angry? Do you do well to be angry? What is the justification for why you've had this outburst? And what God does with this disarming question is he reveals Jonah's heart and what was in charge of it. You see, what was the bad fruit Jonah was experiencing? Well, it was anger. It was disobedience to God. But why? What was the root going on here? We don't know for sure. Almost certainly it was something to do with racism and revenge against the Ninevites. There was a self-righteousness there, I think, because Jonah, knowing God was gracious, knowing he'd received God's grace, didn't want that for his enemy. And in fact, Jonah even experiencing God's deliverance it didn't change him. It's not that Jonah can no longer feel anything or he's clinically depressed because he, he gets joy in the shade that comes up. He, he, it says he delights in it. It's like, oh, actually, Jonah's in a good mood the only time in the book that he's written. But then he gets into this self-destructive despair again. But thankfully, the Lord did help Jonah to change from this to this because we have the book of Jonah as the fruits of his repentance. So how might Jonah have counseled himself biblically to get to where, thankfully, he did, that he would be able to write this book? It's not just about knowledge, okay? It's not just, as we said yesterday, about knowing more theology about God. Jonah had great theology. But he doesn't kind of quite go deep enough because he knows God is kind and gracious but he doesn't want that to be extended. And he makes two mistakes there. He's selfish. And also he hasn't realized that he himself is a recipient of God's grace. And that needs to change him. He has not, as we were singing, got God's amazing grace. He too was sinful and been rescued by God. Twice now, not only from sin in the Jewish system, but also from the sea. And he should see in this pattern of behavior, which was frankly bizarre, he was behaving like a childish idiot, wasn't he? He should see that this is actually directly due to his sin of lacking trust in God. If God had saved him, then God was perfectly at right to save the Ninevites. And what's more, Jonah, you have known nothing of my compassion because you're interested in yourself. What about all the children and animals even in Nineveh that will escape judgment because of your preaching? Did you even care for them, why should they be denied my free grace? 
You see, Jonah needs to find real pleasure and satisfaction coming from God. And Jonah is his own worst enemy here. And sometimes as Christians, we make ourselves our own worst enemy when we become bored with spiritual things. We take God for granted or we just think, actually, we can do this on our own. And then when difficulty, the heat comes, we haven't been developing fruit and the whole thing can start to fall apart. You know, if only Jonah had just obeyed the Lord and had um, fulfillment in doing that, he wouldn't have taken this round-the-world trip. Are there patterns in your life that are making you go the long way around God's will for your life and flourishing? Are there things that you're doing that you think, actually, if you just stopped doing that and started doing this, you would be happy and satisfied. You would actually have a purpose in your life and you would be effective and fruitful for the Lord Jesus. And I think finally then, you know, as a Christian, we would see clearly what Jonah only dimly perceived and what the Lord Jesus hinted at, that the Lord overcame the sinful patterns of Jonah, ultimately through a death, resurrection, and if you can stretch the analogy to the fish vomiting them out on the land as a kind of like a rebirth, this is a process the Lord Jesus promises to every person that comes to him in faith and repentance, say, I will take you, I will make sure that I have died in your place. I will raise you to life and I will give you a new hope. You will be born again. You will have a seed in you that will produce fruit that will last. And so many of us have come to the cross knowing that and have found that the Lord has planted us by life-giving streams of water, a life that will be fruitful, a life that will be something that others will desire and will comment on its stability versus those whose lives end up dusty and barren and arid. This is not going to be a one-off or a quick thing. Um, Jonah took time to get to repentance, and sometimes it takes us time as Christians to, to get to repentance with the Lord. Fruit takes time to grow in its season, but when it matures, it lasts. So I think June is a really good case study, especially for those of you who are probably more mature, more activist believers. Many of you, I mean, the fact you're here on a Sunday night and you'd be watching the rugby, I think, kind of testifies that you have made a decision. But it doesn't stop there. This is not just, you know, I asked Jesus into my heart and right, wham, bam, I'm over here, that's great. This is an ongoing process, daily process, and a daily process that will satisfy you as you see your faith mature. Maybe the Apostle Peter had Jonah in mind when he wrote in his second letter. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness. Godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. For me, I think this is a really good lesson that Jonah could have learned and did learn. He had forgotten the grace that he had received. Now, there's a lot of stuff that we can talk about, and this is only scratching the surface. Um, yes, it is simple, and I think it applies to many situations, even for those you know, of us who struggle with deeper issues, deeper issues with personality, mental health issues, neurodiversity, trauma, abuse. I'm not saying these things are straightforward or easy, but what I'm saying is, is that what, as Christians, we have control over is how we look into our heart and see what 
is guiding my heart? Is it Christ, his word, and what he's done? Or is it something else? Is it some other story? And then ask the Lord for help in that. We don't have time to go into that, but hopefully we will do uh, as we go on and as we work together as a church. Because this has been very individual, but it's not just about the individual. It's about the church community. So get plugged into a local church, wherever you are, if you're not a member of the Crescent. Get plugged into youth work, into serving, but also into growing. Don't become so caught up in activity that you forget about inner spiritual growth and development. And trust in the Lord, especially when the sun is baking out there, especially when it's hard and hot and sweaty and difficult. What sort of tree are you? What fruit has been produced in your life to date? And what does it tell you about where your heart is oriented to? Maybe after the service, when you go home or stay around for coffee, you can kind of talk to your friend and think, well, what are the kind of things that are grabbing my heart? You know, what, what are some of the things where I'd like to see growth this week, this month, this year uh, in my Christian experience? And ask your friend to pray for you, not just that you know, the result of the hospital test will be clear, but also that not only will it be clear, but that God would use this experience to help you to learn how to trust him and not to be so anxious that you forget to bring your problems to him. Maybe you want somebody to pray that you would get this new opportunity, this new job, promotion, or course of study. But maybe you also need to ask them to pray, look, I struggle with the fear of man, with wanting approval, and I know that this new position will give me some measure of status and approval. It's the right thing to do, but I do want to be doing it for the wrong motives. So can you pray that the Lord would keep me from idolizing this thing, make me successful, but give me the right heart and spirit as I do that? Because what I want you to remember from today is always remember what is the fruit, what is being produced in your life, and what is ruling your heart to produce that fruit? And what will the Lord say about that? What guidance does he give for inner change that will make you more and more like his son, the lovely Lord Jesus Christ? Let's pray, and then we'll sing our final hymn. Father God, we thank you that it is your purpose for us that we go forth, bear much fruit that will last, and reflect positively on our Lord Jesus Christ and who he is. Father, I pray for all of us that we would continue to walk in a way that produces good fruit. Help us, Father, to have our hearts um, realigned to your word, to what the Spirit is doing. Help us, Father, when we behave strangely or bizarrely, when we burst into anger, when we burst into fear and anxiety, to just ask ourselves, Father, what is telling me what to do? Is it the Spirit or is it something else? I pray, Father, that you will bless each person here, keep them safe, but also, Father, keep them applying your word, treasuring it, and seeing in their lives and experience the proof of your promise, Father, that you will grow us and that you will make us fruitful and effective for you in your work. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.